Western Syria. Um, and ISIS were coming closer. They've lived in these areas for hundreds and hundreds of years. Not like, you know, they don't move around like we do. That is their family homeland. Uh, ISIS have moved in, so they moved to the next village. And then the next village. And then there was nowhere left to go to. And then they started being shot at. So they went to the border, the Turkish border, and Turkey refused to let them in. They said, go back, go back to your place. So they went back and there was nothing there. And they were being shot at. So they went again to the border and Turkey opened the gates wide. Turkey has two million refugees. <laughs> Their hospitality is humbling to us and we were talking about this after we'd been and we were staying with an English couple and they said you know the word hospitality I wrote it down is philoxenia from the Greek philo meaning to love and xenia meaning the foreigner and we're told in the bible show hospitality to the stranger you invite them into your home. That <laughs> next, please. That's the little hut they live in. There's a mum and one of the kids out the front. Um, you can see, it's just a derelict hut. It's waiting to be demolished. There's 30 people living in two little huts like that. Uh, a big patch of land. That's the pile of fuel on the left that the church have delivered. As I said, everything these people have has been given by this church. Their heating, their bedding, their food. They, they would have nothing. They were begging on the streets. Uh, next, Justin. This is... <laughs> then we moved away from the refugee camp, which was just heartbreaking. And you're there and you're thinking, what can I do? And all you do is you, you bend down and you hug the kids and you pray for the mums, and you give them a hug. And then we went on the next day to three meetings. Today, when the words didn't come up, I thought, well, why am I worried? Last week, I was in a meeting where the words were in Turkish, and then in Farsi, and then in Arabic, and I couldn't read any of it. But I joined in. <laughs> You're just singing tongues or make it up. <laughs> So these are the Arabic kids out the front. They have lots of kids. Um, and the guy at the back with his arm raised, he is one of the leaders there. We had a meal with them. Again, amazing hospitality. And they told us, we said, well, you know, what happened to you? Well, I worked for a big church in Baghdad. Uh, or a church. He didn't say a big. I, I worked for a church. I was out on the streets all the time. I was giving out tracts. I was giving out Bibles. And then I started getting warning phone calls. We know who you are. We know what you're doing. Stop it. So I carried on, he said. And the phone calls kept coming, and I ignored them. And then one day, he was kidnapped by four men and held at knife point, bundled into a car, and he just thought, I've got a wife. I've got two little kids. Help, God. Help. And he said, in Baghdad, there are loads of holes in the road because of the bombing. 
The car hit a hole, turned over. He punched his captor, leapt out the car, climbed, rolled, (laughs) ran to the closest house, knocked on the door and said, I'm a Christian pastor, I've been kidnapped, can I come in? And they let him in. Then they arranged a taxi to get him home and he went into hiding for two months. He couldn't tell his wife what had happened because the last time he'd hit danger, and it happens, (laughs) he told his wife and she was breastfeeding their baby and the milk just stopped instantly. She could never feed again. And this time she was feeding baby number two. So he said, he thought, I can't tell her, I can't tell her. And she kept saying, what's wrong? And he said, I'm ill, I'm ill. And in the end, he told her. And he said, you have to leave. You have to leave with the children. They will find us. These men are serious. And this fantastic woman on the left leading worship said... We either live together or we die together. And they waited. And they got out of the country because he knew certain people. They got driven at night to the airport, bundled into the VIP lounge and put on a plane out. So they made it. (laughs) Can you put the next one up, Justin? That's us telling our story at the Persian meeting. There are 100 people crammed into a room about as big as this bit. Not even as big as this front section. Um, No, it's nothing like as big as this. (laughs) 100 people cram in and about another 50 in the foyer where uh, this is up the stairs, down the stairs, in the kitchen. The place is packed. And uh, we were just telling our story of how uh, we became Christians living in Iran, which, of course, they love. (laughs) Um, And then we started to hear some of their stories. Just amazing stories. The guy who leads the church, again, worked in a church in in Iran. AOG church, big church. I said, well, how big is big? He was the worship leader. He said, about 2,000. And then he told the story of how the authorities closed it down by saying, you can only have meetings in, in, in Aram- Armenian <laughs> because it's legal for the Armenians, Armenians to be Christians. And then they said, you can only have one meeting. And they couldn't do that. And then they said, tell your people next Sunday is the last meeting. Well, they wouldn't do that. So the next Sunday... After that, the building was closed. And these, this church of thousands had to go underground. And this leader said to us it was the worst thing they did because now there are tens of thousands. There is revival breaking out in Iran. They see people coming to this church, visitors, because you don't need a visa to travel from Iran to Turkey. So they have visitors come and visit them who say, tell us, tell us. And they become Christians in a week's visit. And then they go home. And then they're telling people. It is phenomenal what is happening. When we lived in Iran 38 years ago, there were hardly any Christians. 
And I asked the leader, tell us, how did you become a Christian? He said, 50 years ago, my husband's saying it's time. <laughs> 50 years ago, I'll break this really brief, discovered a, his grandfather found a tract on the street and couldn't read, took it home, wanted to know, showed it to somebody, showed it to the muller. The muller he found two tracks. God is amazing. Took one to the muller. What does this say? And the mullah said, oh, you don't want to know anything of this. Tore it up before him. Oh, you don't need to know any of this. So he kept the other one and he found out it was from some Christians and that they, were li- that they lived in Tehran. So he started writing to them. He then got very sick. He lived way up in the north near the Caspian. Had to go to Tehran to the, for, for medical help. And... He went to the doctors and they said, there's nothing we can do. Went to the hospital, they did all the whatevers. So he thought, right, well, I'm here, I'm going to go and find these people I've been writing to. And he knocked on the door and he said, "Um, I'm sick and um, I've been to the hospital and there's nothing they can do. And they said, come in, we have a doctor here, come in. And there was a group of Christians in the room. (laughs) So (laughs) they said, our doctor isn't visible but his name is Jesus and we we will pray to him and he will heal you and he did (laughs) this man was completely and utterly healed so you can imagine he went home told his wife she became believer the whole family so this guy who's leading worship who's a lovely lovely man is a third generation now and all the families keep becoming Christians. The children, the grandchildren, the brothers. I mean, there are so many stories. I've got loads of stories, but I need to stop. But it was our privilege to go. It is awesome to be in the Middle East. Everyone says, you are so brave. No, they're brave. We just get the blessing. It's amazing. Just put that next slide up, will you, just so you get a bit, bit of a... This was at a conference. You'll see Andy Martin in the back with Mikhail. You remember Mikhail? He came uh, last July. Um, Arab leaders and their wives. The three Arab leaders are there. And there's Jill and Heike. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Great. Well... on. Well, I've been, um, I'll tell you the title of my talk today, it's called Breaking the Power of Shame. Um, Have you ever, (laughs) one of those icebreakers, except we call them welcome questions, but I notice in our group we still call them icebreakers, but that's beside the point. you know, it, this, this is a difficult icebreaker when someone says, tell us your most embarrassing moment. Because your most embarrassing moment is probably far too embarrassing to tell. Okay. So you've got to pitch it around, well, it is, Im- is embarrassing, but it'll get a laugh and it, it's not too embarrassing. Okay. So this is my most embarrassing moment 
kind of answer to that one, which is when I first, uh, <laughs> my first job um, in London, I got a job working at university, and uh, I, uh, I was only in my early 20s, and I was a new boy in town, and it was a staff meeting, we invited, and um, Jill was very handy with a sewing machine, and it was the early 70s. Now, what was hip around the early 70s was hipsters, they kind of came to here, they were made of velvet, and they flared. So you can imagine, and Jill made me this beautiful pair in bottle green velvet. <laughs> so I had my hip flares on, and uh, I went to this meeting, and I sat down, and it was this rip. <laughs> And the seam just went from here all the way down my thigh as this opened up. So I had hip and rip flares. <laughs> and I'm sat on this seat. And unfortunately, I had, like you did in those days, you had paper. You know, you carried things around. <laughs> I would have had my laptop like this. But I had, I had this folder over my leg. And I sat in fixed frozen position for the duration of this meeting. and managed to shuffle out and... Uh, <laughs> you know, we've all got these stories, haven't we, where things go seriously wrong. And <laughs> um, but I've been thinking a lot about shame because in the East, the whole thing of shame and honor is massive in shaping the culture. Whereas in the West, I don't think we think a lot about shame. We are much more familiar with guilt. You know, our gospel is presented as Jesus died for your sins. You can have your sins forgiven by trusting in Jesus. And then we we use um, pretty much legal language, justification, you know, you, you've been declared not, not guilty. We, we're very familiar with a gospel presentation, even the four spiritual laws or some of the diagrams we use. They're all about sin separates us from God, but Jesus has paid the price. We can, re, we, you know, we can, we can reconnect. We can become part of his family again. And, and so we know about guilt. What about shame? Because I think it's... Um, we don't talk about it as much, but I've been thinking about it in a Western context. Because, um, see, I think where, where shame in, in some ways is more powerful is that it affects our whole sense of who I am. Because if you've got a shadow of shame over you, it's like this affects my sense of identity. Who am I? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm shamed. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed about my, myself. Um, so I think we've used this as um, the kind of simplest distinction between guilt and shame is guilt, I made a mistake. Shame is, I am a mistake. One's about something you do, which you can deal with, produces guilt, but shame is about who I am. I am a mistake. And, um, and so Jesus came to deal with guilt and he came to deal with shame. And in a minute, I want to tell you a story from the Bible where someone encounters incredible shame, but he finds his way out of it. And I want us to see how he does that. Because he told us, he wrote a little story in the Bible about how he got free from this heavy weight of shame. So, um, it's just earlier in the week, I just thought, oh, I'm going to jot down some of the things that I think can be those fairly deep, the affecting events or things in life that leave us feeling um, 
uh, our, our very sense of being being affected. We're, we're, we're more ashamed of who we are than confident in who we are. Affects our identity. So um, I just was a random list. Um, you lose your job. You get made redundant. It's like, you know, there's a whole issue to deal with, isn't there? I mean, some of you could come up and tell stories about the pressure point of that. And it is a pressure point. Your own sense of identity and being is tied up in what you do. Suddenly someone's, you know, we, we let you go. <laughs> in other words, we, we got rid of you. You know, it's a whole, it affects people. Um, maybe your partner leaves you. Well, I wonder what people think about that. I wonder... I wonder, I wonder what's being said about that. It makes me feel, you know, you could go through that whole thing. Maybe, um, I was even driving here today and I felt I should mention this one. I am a mistake because my parents never wanted me. And you've had a sense of shame and confused identity from the very moment of conception or birth. Um, maybe you make a mistake and you get pregnant and it was never in the plan. And that affects your sense of who you are. Maybe you commit a huge social faux pas. You've just embarrassed yourself in the public setting and you just want to take those words back and swallow them again. Have you ever been like that? Uh, yeah, I just love this story. I don't know if it's true, but it's a good one anyway. Um, the Queen's holding a banquet. Um, you know, like she's honouring people and she does this a lot, doesn't she? And there's one guy... For some reason, I think he must be from Yorkshire, but I don't think that's in the story. But he doesn't know a lot about culinary etiquette. And he's sat there at the banquet, and there's this array of knives and forks and spoons, and he doesn't know which ones to pick up. So he takes a good guess, and he picks up the wrong pair. And the queen sat near him, so she picks up the same ones and saves him from that moment of shameful embarrassment of realizing I just made such a Well, you know, there's all sorts of things um, can affect us. Maybe we've committed um, some kind of crime. You've been pulled out in public. You've, you've, you've been sentenced on a court. You've, you've, you've done something criminal. You know, there's all sorts of things that affect our sense of identity, things we need to work through so we can, can be confident who we are in Jesus Christ. Um, I just put an illness or a disability could do... Um, I think this is where shame, last one here, shame is becoming more of an issue in our Western culture because of social media. Because um, basically you can shame someone just by posting something on Facebook or anything like that which says something critical, uh, embarrassing, shaming, abusive about someone else. And I mean teenagers have to deal with this all the time that kind of social pressure, and, and shaming. They've done nothing wrong. There's no guilt. It's just shame's been put on them. And the pressure of that on a tender, emotionally developing person can be hugely significant. And I'm sure you've got some stories around. And, you know, you've got bullying online and all this. It is shame-inducing. And So I think this is a really serious topic. That's what I'm trying to say, is that we need to be able to walk through this stuff because who wants to live under that? We get so used to it. It can be part of your identity, but it, it is not what God intended. So before we just get to the story, let me give you very, very quickly um, some background. Uh, you know, we need to just where it came from. Could we have that Genesis 2.25 up? Um, now, the man and wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. 
Shame is something you feel, actually. It is a feeling. It's got an emotional input. It's got, it's got emotional power. But they felt no shame because there was no shame. Because, well, they'd been given authority to co-rule with God the, the whole of creation. They'd, they were his co-regents. They had identity because they were his. They were part of his family. There was the father. There were, there were the kids. There was, the, there was Adam and there was Eve. And there was a strong sense of identity and acceptance. And so they felt that. Why should they? The fall has not yet come. There, there is a place where there was no shame. But very quickly, as we move to the next verse, we find that I was afraid... Doesn't it say something about shame? Okay, that'll do. Um, wasn't the verse I was looking at. But Genesis 3, verse 7. Have we got that? Is it coming up? Can you do me verse 7? No, okay. I will read it to you. I've got a book here. It comes in useful sometimes. I'm glad I brought it. You never know. Um, then they, they ate the apple. Okay. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves cloths to put around their private parts. Hey, that's what happened as a consequence of what we call the fall, that kind of act of disobedience. Dave talked about, well, we all fall short of the glory of God. It's just so spot on that, Dave. Um, we do. We all fall short of the glory of God. And uh, they fell short of the glory of God. They took a step that brought separation, alienation. And so what happened? They felt, they became aware. There was no shame. They weren't naked. Now they are naked. They feel shame. Do you, would you agree? That's, and they felt it. And so immediately what happens with shame is you want to hide it. Okay, we've got to cover this up quickly, sew something together. Thick leaves are quite big, but they're not very durable. <laughs> so God very kindly, do you know, if you read on, he, he, he made clothes for them from animal skins. So um, there was a provision of mercy for their shame, but they were trying to hide. And they were afraid. Oh, we heard Jesus. Well, that one will do for that. I was afraid because I was naked suddenly shame aware, and I heard you were coming, so instead of running to meet you, I hide, I'm afraid of God. So the three things that come in as a result of this separation from God is guilt, shame, and fear. And any culture, one of those will be the predominant kind of cultural context in which you need to share the gospel. So Dave shared it very well this morning, I thought, in terms of uh, our need for being put right with God because we've, we've sinned. Which could be guilt, shame, or fear, actually, because all of those come to play. Anyway, um, so you have to remember the Bible was written in the age where shame was a very strong social motivator. You did everything to protect yourself from shame, and you sought to create honor for you and your family and your, so, your, 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 maybe your racial group, your social group. That was, that was a powerful motivator. When Jesus walked this earth, he refused to endorse or live by the honor system that was all around the status of the Pharisees, their reputation. How did you, how did you get recognition? Well, 
you, you played the same game. And you tried not to get embarrassed in public. And Jesus seemed to love provoking <laughs> deliberately to expose this false honor system that was around them. Um, here's a definition of shame by someone, a Chinaman, Jackson Wu. So he should know. Shame is the ill repute brought upon a person for some perceived deficiency or failure to meet the standards issued by his own community. And uh, Now, what Scripture promises is that instead of shame or dishonor, we will receive honor from God. That is the gospel promise. If you, if you, if you want to twist this one around, there is a promise of honor. 60, Isaiah 61 verse 7. Let's see how we get on with that. Instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy a double share of honor. Well, it would be great to be honored, wouldn't it? You know, you gave me a little clap, a little ripple clap. I agree. It wasn't heartfelt and really <laughs> massive endorsement of me, but it was a little ripple. And I thank you for that. I felt somewhat honored and... Um, and, you know, it's good to honor one another, isn't it? We, we, and, and here God says, or Isaiah says on behalf of God, instead of shame and dishonor, which are everywhere, I'm going to bring you a double share of honor. Ah, oh, that would be great. And to be honored by God, it's like, you can't get higher than that, can you? I mean, well, it's just wonderful, isn't it? I mean, that, that would change my, our lives. So, so thank you for your... Ripple of honor. I was listening to <laughs> Simon Holly while we were at this conference because he was there. And he was talking about how they, they wanted to reduce their essential core values of what they are, their cultural values as a church, down to just five clear words. And one was honor. In fact, it was the first one he talked about. We want to live in a church where we quite deliberately and quite intentionally honor one another. And another one was accept, where we honor and accept one another. And a third was with authenticity. We're real. It's not a pretend, good morning, Mr. Jones, you know, and I hope you're well. It's a genuine authenticity that goes. And, and, and so, so I want to tell you a story how we get from a place of dishonor to a place of a double honor. Okay. And I want to tell you a story. It's tragic in many ways, but God really uses it in the life of this character. You'll recognize him soon. He's, um, he's a lot's promise over him. He's living with the rainbow promises. He's, he's seen a lot of success, um, particularly on the battlefield. He's killed his ten thousands, whilst the king has only killed his thousands. So, you know, I'm talking about Saul and David. And David, uh, Saul becomes jealous of David. And he begins to want to kill him because he's getting more honor than Saul is. And that's an offense to him. He can't handle it. So, he gets his son Jonathan to try and get David to come to this banquet so he can spear him. He's already tried to spear him a couple of times and failed. And Jonathan sides with David and says, well, David, I'm going to find out if my dad really does want to kill you. And he finds out he really does want to kill him. It's, this is, so what's he going to do? What is he going to do in that moment? And 
This is where he, he doesn't seek God, but the fear and the pressure. See, some situations in life are so pressurized, we make bad calls. It's just the truth. When you're under pressure, you can make a bad call. Because pressure does that. You don't have a, you know, there's an emotional contact. There's fear. Fear was really pressing in on him. And, and so he makes a call of what he's going to do. And in that pressure moment, and it is, I mean, it, it's easy to stand back and say, oh, he should have asked God what to do. Well, yeah, he should, should. But I've been in pressure situations where I'm just knee-jerk reaction. I'm not asking God what to do. And I'm sure you can all, do, all identify with that. There are pressure moments where fear's on the rise and you make a bad call. And he made a bad call. I don't think there's any doubt about that. He thinks, he, he decides, he, he runs and he goes to the priest. That's not a bad call. He could have asked the priest to pray on his behalf, but there's no record that he did. Um, what he says is, I need, I need some food and I need a weapon. And so, the priest is a bit surprised to see David on his own. He says, well, where are, your, where are your men? And he lies. In the pressure moment, he lies. He says, oh, they're just hiding, waiting for me. Well, I could give you this bread, but then they need to be pure. They need to abstain from sexual relationship for at least the last 24 hours. Oh, yes, they have. Another lie. So, the priest gives him... The, the holy bread that's been stood before God for the last week. So it's a bit on the tough side. <laughs> you know, every week they change it over and they just changed it over. So he's given the bread. And then the sword. Oh, we got this. We got Goliath's old sword. I mean, this is David's sword, really, isn't it? I mean, he got it off Goliath and it's wrapped up in this cloak and it's just waiting. He thinks, I've got the sword, I've got some bread. I haven't got any men. I'm all alone. What am I going to do? Oh, I know. I'll, I'll go and hang out in one of these Philistine cities and let their king take care of me. The one whose men, the 10,000s I've been killing, I think I'll go to his city in Gath. And he goes to the city, and then they start saying, hey, this is David who's killed our 10,000s. And in a moment he realizes that he's totally screwed up. So what, he's got to find a way out of a pressure moment. So what does he do? He has to pretend to be insane, which is what he does. So he's got a beard. Every good Jewish boy had a beard. And he starts to let saliva run down his beard. And he starts to act like a madman, and he starts clawing at the doors of the of the town, Gath, and he's, and and he must have been a good actor because they're taken in by this, this, this. I mean, shame is covering him. He, this, this is a shaming experience. If you can imagine, if you ever been under that much pressure, where you've had to, you know, you've had to act like an idiot in order to get out of a situation, but it works because he says. I've not got enough madmen already in Gath. Get rid of him, you know. And he, he manages to, to be released to go, even though he's, he's this commander in the midst of his enemies. And he's released. And well, the story starts to, then he goes to the cave of Adullam, and we all know about that. And it starts to change. But something happened. Something had to happen 
for him to come out from the shame of dribbling maniac, uh, that pressure point behavior, so that he could walk free again. Maybe one of those things that you connected with earlier, you need to know. How do I walk out from under that? How do I walk out from feeling I've always been a mistake? I shouldn't even be here. How do I walk out from it? How do, how do we walk out? And he wrote a psalm that tells us how he walked out from it. And um, it's, it, I like the, you know how the psalms sometimes, they're not really scripture, they just tell you the story and then they go into the psalm. So Psalm 34, you can peg up the first few verses anyway. And um, <laughs> I, uh, I think I'm going to have to resort to my Bible again. And... Uh, is it? Oh, that is. But not the introduction, you see. It gives you the context sometimes for a psalm. And um, so we've got the first few verses. But Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. <laughs> I just like that. And he went away. Simple, isn't it? But this was his behavior before the king. He was called Abimelech. Uh, one of the... Shaming consequence of this story that you read, you will catch up if you just go past the cave of Adullam thing. Is this priest who gave him the bread, thinking he was on a mission for King Saul? Someone overhears and tells Saul, and as a result of that, this priest, the high priest, who's called Ahimelech, gets killed because Saul is so angry about it. Not only that, all 85 members of his family are also killed. So this lie and then this kind of downhill descent produced not just shame for David, but a shame that covered whole, a whole consequence. 85 people dead because of his lie. And um, so he's got to come out from it. And um, just got a few minutes left, so I want to pick up three things from this psalm, if you can have it back up again. He wrote it when he'd already made the journey, I believe. Uh, he'd already come out from under all the feeling of failure that went with it. Because it starts, first three verses are all about praise. So it was great to start that today, you know, about entering his gates, thanksgiving. There is a place you can get to, whatever the circumstance, where you can praise God. There just is. And it is a place we have to get to. He got there. And if you look at it, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, it's all times and constantly. All right? This, is, this, is, this isn't just <laughs> breaking out for a moment. This, this is finding that place where he knows. When you hear these refugee stories and you've been in their shoes, it's a lot easier in one sense, for them to praise God at all times. I'll constantly give him praise because that's all they've got. Except they've got family around them. They've got some friends around them. In the church, they can party like nobody else. Um, so it's just, you know, but, but they were able to praise constantly. Uh, and then the second verse is, I'll boast only in the Lord, who are, uh, let all who are helpless. You see, 
There's a place there, there's a bit of a clue there, isn't there? Have you ever felt helpless <laughs> and prayed to God? Um, if you don't feel helpless, then we've not hit bottom, have we? You know, there's a, there's a humble place in which I've so screwed up. I'm so aware of where I am and I need. And so he, he says, let the helpless cry and God will answer them. And, uh, and then the third verse is sing a new song, play skillfully, sing with joy, come. Let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. And you know that shame thing, what does it do? You want to hide. Don't wanna, you want to hide. You don't want to come out in the open. There's fear, there's a sense of guilt because you've sinned and you know you've sinned, but there's this shame, just cover up, hide. Let's retreat. And, and so he says, let us exalt the Lord together. Yeah? Together. He's made, he's made some big decision here. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to hide away. I'm not going to shut myself off from my brothers and sisters. I'm going to press right in. We're going to exalt the Lord together. Let's just do it. You know, I, I'm, I am going to go to group this week because I want to see my brothers and sisters and I want to exalt the Lord together. You know, that instinct to pull back, let us not stop meeting together because somewhere we want to hide because there's something to hide. We're embarrassed, we're ashamed. And, and, and David's made a breakthrough here. He's, 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 he's got back to God. He knows he's, he's been able to humble himself as helpless and he knows he's happy to be amongst his, the people. Let's do it together. And then the next thing, so that's the first thing. It's all around praise, worship and connecting with God. The second thing is... He prays to be delivered. I pray to the Lord. He answered me. He freed me from all my fears. And uh, hmm. I just thought it was interesting we sang that song. I'm a child of God, you know. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Okay, and I thought, oh, well done, Ali. Got, got that one right. <laughs> we, we connected somewhere there, didn't we? And uh, so well done, mate. Um, because those words just capture something about walking out of fear. It's part of the, we, we just got to, you know, we, we, what we're talking about, these people, what they've lived with. You, you can't walk, there's, I mean, it's extreme. Either I'm under the, the grace and the favor of God and I'm enjoying it, or I'm under fear and then I'm fighting to find that place of faith. Who am I? Oh, I'm a child of God. That's the place of honor. That's where we get our identity as children of God. And that, we've dishonored God. If we're going to honor God, we're going to live as his kids. We're going to find that our fears go. And the third thing is, it just says, this is the um, New Living Translation. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame not even a shadow of shame will darken their face. And um, you see, I think when we come to God conscious of an area of shame, the first thing we have to do, I, I would argue, is repent. That we ever allowed ourselves to be defined not as sons and daughters with a place of honor in the family of God, which was always his intent, 
but we got gripped by the fear. We got gripped by the shame. We just got gripped by it. And so I, I want to repent of ever believing that lie, Lord. It's the best way into finding the truth. It really, you know, it's just to be straight like that. And then I think um, we're going to sing a song in a moment. God being a good, good father. That's who he is. That's who I am. You know, the whole thing of who am I? I, I am a, I'm a man free of shame because I've known what it is for God to smile on me. Do you know his smile? His smile breaks the shame. We can repent of ever allowing others to define us, that fear of the public voice, that kind of thing. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't ever want to come under that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Lord, I ever did, but I did. I know I did. I know I am. But I want to be free, even this morning. I want you to break the power of shame over my life that I can walk with my head held out as, as your child and I can sing that song, I'm no longer a slave to it. I can sing, good, good father. Why don't you come up, Ali, with your band? And, uh. You see, Jesus went to the cross. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us that he went to the... Sh- and he despised the shame because he'd seen something greater the joy that was set before him he despised the shame he endured the cross that he might be ex- he would be exalted to the right hand of honor and glory on high and, and you see we have the gospel addressing a shame culture and a shame situation and a shamed life right there in Hebrews 12 verse 2 Jesus despised the shame he took our shame he became shame on the cross. You think what shaming was done to Jesus. The attempt of all the authorities to bring him to a place of shame. They whipped him, they flogged him, they stripped him, he was naked, they nailed him to a cross, cursed is everyone who dies on a cross. They did everything they could to bring shame onto Jesus and he despised it and disregarded it. He would not allow shame of the, of the culture he was in to define who he was. He knew who he was and he would not let it And he had a victory on the cross because he rose. And so on our behalf, he took our shame. He broke its power. And that's why you can have the power of shame broken over you this morning. Just as you say, I'm not going to come under that. I'm sorry, Lord. I believed a lie. It's not true. This is who I am. Now come and break the power of shame. Just through the cross, through the resurrection. That's the truth. And so even as we sing this song, it's um, just about who we are. Let's do it. And then we'll just see what God wants to do.